A lot of you guys know my favorite TV show. I have two favorite TV shows, really. I talk about, if you're going to hear me preach a lot, you're going to hear a lot about these two TV shows. Because pretty much all I do is watch these two shows. One of them is Star Trek, hence the Enterprise tattoo right there on the old arm. And, uh, yeah, I went to this Star Trek thing, by the way, and I was making fun of all the guys who showed up in costume, you know? They had, like, the Spock ears and everything on. And I was like, what a bunch of dorks. But then I realized they go home and the Spock ears come off, and I still have... The Star Trek tattoo. Anyway, so you're going to hear a lot about Star Trek. The other one you're going to hear a lot about is Seinfeld. I love Seinfeld. Um, even though I never saw it while it was on. It finished when I was in college, I think. And Anyway, so there's an episode of Seinfeld uh, where uh, uh, George's dad here, um, uh, Frank Costanza, played by Jerry Stiller, one of my favorite comedy actors of all time, uh, he gets tired of Christmas. And uh, he makes up his own holiday. It's called Festivus. It's one of my favorite episodes of the show. And so George uh, ends up celebrating Festivus with his father, and he has to bring his boss. It's a whole thing. So they, get, they sit down for their Festivus dinner, and part of the Festivus thing is, well, we don't do Christmas trees. They just have an aluminum pole in their house, the Festivus pole. Um, there's T-shirts, by the way, you can get that about, all about happy Festivus, that sort of stuff. Um, well, anyway, so in one of the, like, traditions, you know we have Christmas traditions, right? What do we drink? Eggnog, and we open presents, uh, and we sit around by the fire and listen to Amy Grant. Was that just me? All right. Uh, we listen to Amy Grant, right? We have our Christmas traditions. Well, Festivus has their traditions, too. And one of the traditions is fe- in Festivus is called the airing of grievances. And it, this is absolutely hilarious. So this is where... Uh, this is what this little, this little meme comes from, this little slide. It says, I've got a lot of problems with you people, and you're going to hear about it. Basically, they just go around the table, and they say everything that they're upset about with each other. They call it the airing of grievances. And so, you know, they're screaming at each other. Well, here's the thing. We're on the last of these letters to the church, uh, to these seven churches. And we're going to read the church uh, in Laodicea. And as I was reading this letter, it reminded me a lot of Festivus and the airing of grievances. I feel like this is what Jesus is going to do here today with this church because he's got nothing good to say about this church in Laodicea. It's almost like George Costanza's dad. What's his name? Frank Costanza. It's like Jesus is, okay, here's a church in Philadelphia. And if you remember the church in Philadelphia, he didn't have anything bad to say about them. You guys are awesome. You're enduring persecution. And then he flips to the church in Laodicea. I got a lot of problems with you people. And you're definitely going to hear about it. And so uh, this letter, the tone just absolutely flips from the last letter. All right, so um, uh, this is, again, the order of the churches um, in, like, as a mail carrier would take these letters. And today we're coming to the last city. Uh, It's 45 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It's called Laodicea. It was, let me tell you a little bit about this city. It was a very wealthy city. So um, probably the wealthiest city in this whole little valley, in this whole region where all of these churches were. Um, So think of like maybe, I don't know, what's a wealthy city? Marin, right here, you know, uh, where everybody's kids are in four sports and they all drive Range Rovers kind of a thing, right? That's the city of Laodicea. It was also um, a... Uh, it was a center of banking. So they had a bank here, and it was kind of the financial center of uh, this little area. Um, they were known for their industry, uh, especially their clothing industry. So they had a bunch of famous wool merchants that worked here. Um, and then they were also known because uh, they had a famous school of medicine here in the city of Laodicea. Uh, and 
there's inscriptions uh, that they found that talk about the, this famous eye medicine called uh, Phrygian powder. Uh, and it was like this eye ointment that helped, was supposed to help you if you had eye pain or couldn't see or whatever. I don't know if it actually worked. It probably didn't. Man, medicine back in the day, you want to go down a rabbit hole, start Googling what medicine was like back in the day. There was some horrible things they used to uh, My favorite is leeches. You guys know about leeches? It was like, oh, yeah, there's something wrong. Your blood is contaminated, so we're just going to put a bunch of leeches on your body, and they'll drain all the blood out of you. They did this. This is why George Washington died, because they leached him like a whole bunch of times when they should have not done that. But anyway, so there's some crazy medicine stuff. But anyway, back in the ancient world, I guess people thought this eye ointment worked. I don't know. So this church was famous for these three things, right? It was a wealthy banking city. They had this clo- these clothing merchants and this cloth industry. Uh, and then they were famous for their school of medicine. All right, so let's jump into the letter. Um, if you remember, the pattern of these letters is uh, it starts with a description of uh, who Jesus is. So let's first, let's look at this description of who Jesus is. It says, and to the angel uh, of the church... Of Laodice- in Laodicea, right? The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So there's three uh, descriptions here of Jesus. The first is he calls himself the Amen. All right, this is one of those things. Do you know what Amen actually means? Besides that you say it when you're done praying. Dear Lord, thank you for this macaroni and cheese. Amen, right? Okay, but what does it actually mean? Uh, it's Sort of a, um, it comes from a Hebrew word, and it sort of means like, uh, this is true. I, or you would say it like, I agree with this, right? Um, when I was in college, we said word, you know? Somebody would say something, you'd go, oh yeah, word, you know? It's the same thing. Amen, right? It's I agree with this, I wholeheartedly uh, uh, concur. And so last week, Jesus, he called himself uh, true, and we talked about the different words for true, and last week we said he called himself true and not counterfeit, as in he was, Jesus says, I'm the genuine one. Well, here it's the other side. This one means I'm true and not false. Uh, this is expanded in the second description of himself. He calls himself the faithful and true witness. Now, together in a, in a little while when we move up the street, uh, my plan is we're going to read the book of Luke together. And we're going to do it in a few chunks because Luke is, Luke is a really long book. And if we did it in one straight shot, I think it would take us like three years to read the book of Luke. We're going to read the book of Luke, and we're going to break it up. And I wanted to do a series about sort of who is the real Jesus. Who is he? What, is, what was he about? What did he say? Is the Jesus that you think about in your mind and the Jesus that you worship actually the Jesus of the Bible? And here's the thing. Uh, we kind of, and especially in American churches, we have this pretty picture of Jesus, right? He's all meek and mild and He's always sitting around lambs for some reason, and there's children. You know, like we've got this gentle picture of Jesus, which is partly true, uh, but there's more to Jesus than that, right? He said some crazy things about who he was. Um, I've heard a bunch of, there's a book, I've heard different sermons about like the crazy things that Jesus said. The hard sayings of Jesus is what they all call it. Uh, But Jesus said some crazy things. Um, For example, I mean, just the idea of calling himself God is nuts. Right? And C.S. Lewis talks about that, that you can't just say that Jesus was a good moral teacher. A lot of people say that. Well, I don't believe he's the Messiah, but he was a good teacher. But the problem is the things he taught. He says, if a teacher comes up to you and says, hey, guys, by the way, I'm God, that's a pretty, it's pretty nuts, right? So either C.S. Lewis says he's either right and he's the Lord uh, or he's a liar and he knew he was wrong and he just lied about it, which makes you think, well, why should I trust anything else he said? Or he's crazy, he's a lunatic, right? Lord, liar, lunatic. That's what C.S. Lewis said. 
And so Jesus really does say some sort of nuts things. And the idea that he's just a good teacher is not really an option, C.S. Lewis says, that was left for us. So uh, as we read the book of Luke, though, we're going to come across some of this stuff. And we're going to wonder, man, is this real? Like, did he really say this? Uh, Did he really mean what he says here? And just from this description, we know Jesus always speaks the truth. Um, uh, It's a wonderful thing. And so as we talk about, uh, as we read the book of Luke together, I don't want to ever forget this description of Jesus. Is he is the truth. The reason we're reading, the, we're going to read the book of Luke is uh, to see what it is that Jesus says and how he presents himself and how he guides us to the truth, right? So here he is. He's the amen. He's the faithful and true witness. And then the third thing is he's the beginning of God's creation. Now, uh, there's, you know the phrase, have you ever heard this before, um, that every heretic has his verse have you ever heard that phrase? And the idea is every sort of crazy heretical sect out there can always pick one verse and say, oh, this is the verse that proves my point. But they don't ever talk about that verse in context. They don't talk about the literary forms that that verse comes. But, you know, it's always sort of a face-level value reading. Well, there's a lot of uh, heretical sects uh, that talk about how Jesus is uh, a created being. I think it's the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? Don't they say that, um, or is it the Mormons? It say uh, Jesus and... Satan are brothers, or that Archangel Michael are brothers, and Jesus is just, he's a created being, but he's the most important created being. And and just glossing over this, it kind of seems to say that, right? The beginning of God's creation. But let me explain what's going on here. Um, you guys know about cross-references? You know what that is in your Bible, right? So if you have a Bible, uh, like your ESV Bible, or, you know, maybe in the app too, if you click on it, uh, there's cross-references. And all cross-references are is somebody went along and said, oh, this verse reminds me of this other verse over here. Um, one of my favorite resources, and I threw this in the Bible app there, um, if you're following along, it's called the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. If I was trapped on a desert island with my Bible and one other book, it would be the Treasury of Scripture Knowledge. It's just this giant reference of these cross-references. And so in your Bible, if you look, if you have an ESV Bible, uh, right next to this beginning of God's creation, there's a small little R. And if you follow that uh, on the side, it takes you uh, to the book of Colossians. And it's important here that what Jesus is doing when he describes himself, he's actually quoting Paul. uh, And he's quoting from the book of Colossians, which is interesting because uh, Colossae was uh, right next to Laodicea. These two were sister cities. It was like the daily city of Laodicea. They're right next to each other. And so no doubt that this church in Laodicea had read for 40, 50 years now that letter to the the church in uh, Colossae, the the Colossian letter. And Jesus is kind of saying, hey, don't you guys remember what Paul says about me in that book of Colossians? So if you follow that cross-reference, you jump over, it'll take you to Colossians 1.15. Where uh, I'll read to you 15 through 20. This is this magnificent hymn, one of the earliest songs that we have about Jesus. It says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that uh, in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him uh, to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. 
So that's this magnificent uh, description of Jesus in the book, uh, the letter to the Colossians. And what it's saying is, it, it, there it also uses that phrase, uh, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Uh, but in Colossians, it's a little more clear what he's talking about, the way it's worded in Greek. is Firstborn in the ancient world didn't always mean uh, actually like firstborn in time, chronologically firstborn. Uh, the idea of the firstborn meant you're the one who's the most important member of the family. But one of the interesting things is, and this is a side note, in the Bible, how often the secondborn ends up the firstborn. Right? Look at Isaac, look at uh, Jacob and Esau, look at Joseph was down the line. Right? And so God is constantly flipping this ancient, um, this ancient custom and practice. But anyway, the idea is firstborn doesn't mean, oh, you're the first son or whatever. It means you're the most important. And so for Jesus to call himself the beginning of God's creation, sort of quoting the book of Colossians, he's saying, I'm the most important. It doesn't mean I'm the, I'm the first of creation. He's saying, out of all creation and everything, you know, everything that there is, I am God. I am the creator. He is God Almighty. He's part of the Trinity. And so that's a pretty uh, weighty, again, weighty description that we have of Jesus. He is the truth. Right? He's the amen, the faithful and true witness. He is the most important thing that has ever been or ever will be. He is God, part of the Trinity. And now, with all of that said, he's sort of putting weight behind these words where he's about to drop the hammer on this church in Laodicea. Remember, it is all bad news. The next section is usually, here's what's good about your church, here's what's bad, here's how you can fix it, here's what happens if you don't fix it. Uh, and then here's a promise. But here he just goes straight from the description to here's what's bad. And you can imagine the church in Laodicea are receiving the book of Revelation. And they sit down and they read it in church. And the whole church gets together. And they read to the church in, uh, you know, Smyrna. Here's, you know, what's, like that one had only good stuff too. But, uh, you know, to the other churches, right, Sardis. Here's what's bad. Here's what's good. You know, and so they, they get the pattern. And so they read this, oh, he's the amen, the faithful witness, you know, all this stuff. Great. Now, what does he think good about our church? And then it jumps straight into verse 15, and you can just imagine the whole congregation's stomach sinks, right? Uh, verse 15, he says, I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, Poor, blind, and naked. Wow, Jesus, tell us how you really feel, huh? I mean, this is, this is heavy stuff. The first thing he says is, again, and he says this to a lot of the churches, is, I know your works. Now, that's great news if your works even remotely line up with what you claim as faith. But what if your works aren't that great, right? The Bible talks about a lot about fruit. You know, the fruit that people produce in their lives as a, a sort of springs out of their faith. Well, here's the thing. What if the fruit is rotten? That's pretty terrifying, then, for Jesus to know your works. Think about it. Privacy is a huge issue in our, in our world the way it is, right? We want to keep things private. Uh, we want, uh, you know, there's all the um, controversy right now about Facebook's all up in your business and is selling your information to everybody, and Google's doing the same thing. Uh, think, uh, everybody's all mad about this, but think about it. Uh, imagine somebody took your last year of emails and text messages and put them on the Internet for anybody to see. Just for a second. Everybody was going through, and they were reading your emails and your text messages. You'd probably be terrified. Why? Even if you don't remember writing anything bad, you'd probably be terrified. Because our privacy stems from this, is that somewhere deep down, we all suck and we all know it. 
Right? When you get deep down inside of us, what do you find? Right? You find sin to the core. And we don't really want to be known because we know deep down we're terrible. And we do things and we say things that we don't want to do and we don't want to say. We do and say things that we're ashamed of. And we know that we do it. And we need privacy because of sin. And so think about this church in Laodicea. Jesus comes to them and he says, I know everything. This is their worst fears. Throws them into the open. Guys, I know everything. And guess what? It is all bad news. And so look how he describes them. He says, you are not hot or cold. You're lukewarm. Right? Now, here's the thing. When we're reading the Bible, we can't apply our own cultural stuff to this ancient text, if that makes sense. Right? We have to read it in the way that it was meant to be read. And in our culture, we have this game right, that we play with kids or whatever. You hide something, or, uh, and they're walking around the house, and they're looking for it. And if they get close to it, you say, ah, you're getting warm. And if they get further away, you say, oh, you're getting cold, colder, colder, you know, until they find whatever it is. That's kind of, when we think hot or cold, I think in most of our minds, this is sort of where we go. And so at face value, when we read this, Jesus says, I wish you were either good or bad, right? Uh, I wish you were either close or far away. Uh, But that doesn't really make any sense. Why would Jesus wish that they were cold? Why would he wish that they were bad? Here's what's actually going on. Um, There's a lot written about the city of Laodicea, and uh, we know a lot about the history. And this city had no water source, uh, had no water source anywhere near the city. And so they had to ship in all their water through these Roman aqueducts. And so up the hill, about six miles away, there was a hot springs that ran hot water into the city. Uh, And then six miles in the other direction, there was sort of a a cold spring where they would run cold water into the city. So they had these two huge aqueducts that would run the water into the city. But here's the thing. Six miles is a long way to run water across a stone aqueduct. And so by the time the water got to the city of Laodicea, it was, whether you got it from the hot spring or the cold spring, it was tepid and disgusting and it was filled with bacteria. And so Laodicea was constantly having problems with people getting sick because of the water. So you had to boil the water and do all that sort of stuff uh, to uh, make it drinkable, right? And so that's the, the historical context behind the meaning of Jesus' words. Do you see what he's saying? He's using something from their culture that they all understood to talk about them. He says, look, you guys are just like the water. You're useless. That's what he means. Not that I wish you were good or bad. But what he's saying is you guys are useless because all, uh, you guys make me sick. Right? I wish you were hot or I wish you were cold because cold water is good for something and hot water is good for something and disgusting, tepid water makes people sick is not really good for anything. Which is why, by the way, I don't understand how you guys all walk around with those water bottles that aren't insulated and you drink your disgusting, tepid water all day. You know, and There's a guy in our core team uh, with the porch, Chris. He always has the huge thing of disgusting Nalgene water. Yeah, That's insulated, though. See, I mean like just a plastic one. Anyway has nothing to do with anything. Uh, so he says, look, church in Laodicea, you guys are absolutely useless. Uh, and you make me want to throw up. That is very harsh language for Jesus to use about a church. You guys make me sick. Uh, how is this church useless, though? Well, it doesn't really say, but we can take a pretty good guess. Think about it. What is the point of church? We've talked about this before. We did a whole sermon series on church and what's the point of church. The point of church is, very simply put, is to follow the Great Commission, Right? To make new disciples and then to grow them into disciple makers. To make and grow disciples. And so if a church isn't doing that, they're kind of like this church in Laodicea. Useless. They make Jesus sick. 
And so this happens to churches all the time. We focus on ourselves and what we're going through and what we should be doing, you know, instead of our gospel mandate. And this is why with the porch and all this stuff, I talk so much about what we call missional living. And it's very simple. And I talked about this, I think it was last week and maybe the week before too. But we're going to talk about this a lot. And the idea is this. Everywhere you go, you are an ambassador for our King Jesus. So whether you're at work, whether you're with your roommates, whether you're with your friends, whether you're with your family, doing your hobbies, uh, playing basketball, whatever it is, working out at the gym, I don't know what else people do, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, right? Whatever it is that you're doing, you're an ambassador for King Jesus. And so you live your life with intention that I am going to love and I'm going to serve the people around me knowing that they're going to see Jesus in my life. And I'm going to sacrifice for people and I'm going to try to spend as much time as I can with unbelievers uh, because I want to help our church fulfill the mission of God. Um, And so we want God, when he thinks of our little church startup here, to look at us and think, whoa, those guys were faithful to the call. Um, But here's the thing. To get to the point where we are actually faithful to the mission of Jesus, one thing we have to always do is be honest about our strengths and our weaknesses. We have to be honest about ourselves, uh, something that a lot of churches don't really do. Uh, That's the second thing Jesus says here, is you have this overinflated view of yourselves. Look at this in verse 18. He says, look, you guys, you, you say I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. All right, this church thought that they were rich. Uh, But Jesus comes to them and he says, guys, you're poor. You've been poor all along. Your self-assessment is completely wrong. How does this happen? How does somebody look at themselves uh, completely wrong? Well, they probably use the wrong metrics. Um, I was just hanging out with a bunch of pastors on Thursday, and we were talking about this, right? Is um, how do we in the American church, um, how do we measure success? What's a successful church look like when you think about it in your mind? What's a successful church? Well, we probably think there's a lot of people that go on Sunday. Uh, But let me ask you this. Which church is more successful? The church with 300 people and no new believers or the church with 100 people and 10 new believers in a year? Right. Which one actually fulfilled the kingdom of God more? Which one actually fulfilled the mission of God? That first church probably had a bigger building, more money, larger staff. The music was better. The coffee was better. Our nation is filled with churches just like this, right? Churches we think are successful uh, because people show up on Sunday. But here's the thing. Sunday morning attendance is not the end game of the kingdom of God, right? Discipleship is following, actually following Jesus is what the kingdom of God is all about. And so this doesn't mean that we're not going to keep track of numbers. It doesn't mean that we're not going to think about our budgets and think about our money and all that stuff. But what it means is we're not going to value our self-worth from those things. Our end game as a church has to always be faithfulness to the Great Commission and faithfulness to grow disciples uh, of Jesus. So instead of how many people on uh, Sunday come to church, here's what I want you to think about is time. How much time... Uh, did you spend with people um, that you are investing in in a kingdom way, right? How, many, how, much, how much of your life 
is set apart for that sort of missional living where you are being intentional with the people around you and you're playing Dungeons and Dragons and you're going to basketball specifically to play with people who are not believers so that you can build relationships and you're having people into your home, right? All of that stuff takes time and takes effort and is hard, but that's the kind of stuff that we want to measure and we want to think about as kingdom success. Um, I, was, I was telling somebody this last week. I was watching this TV show. And it's a stupid TV show, so I'm not even going to mention what it is. And um, in the TV show, the guy, there's a guy on the show who uh, gets a lot of girls. And his friend, who's a dork, doesn't get any of the girls, uh, wants to know, how, what's your secret? What's the trick? How do you always have success with the ladies, you know? And so the successful uh, friend takes his buddy to a bar. And he walks up to a girl, and I forget, he says something nasty to her or whatever, and she slaps him in the face. And uh, then he walks over to another girl and he says something to her and she slaps him in the face. And he does this three or four times until like the fifth girl goes, oh, hey, I'm, you know, I'm Debbie. What's your name? You know, and they sit down and they have a conversation. And at the end of it, uh, they, the two guys have this conversation and the second guy goes, so that's your secret? You just ask out everybody until somebody says yes? And the first guy goes, yeah, it's not that complicated. Now, that's a terrible illustration and don't push this too far. But that's basically what we want to do as a church with the kingdom of God, is this guy's strategy to meet women at a bar. Is Here's the thing. Let's say, I don't know, when we start meeting across this, or up the street, let's say there's 30 of us total, right? 30, 40, whatever it is. Um, now, if all of us are investing in something like 5 to 10 people, 3 to 10 people, I don't know, a handful of people, right? Um, that's over 100 people in the city, just around in our neighborhood, at your work, wherever, that are being loved and served and uh, invested in by followers of Jesus. Over 100 people. Now, here's the thing. I don't expect all of those people to come to faith. When that does happen, we call that in church, we call that a revival, when just all kinds of crazy numbers happen. I don't expect to bat 1,000. But let's say even if we just bat as well as like a pitcher in the major leagues and we're batting, you know, 050 or whatever, uh, even just a little bit, we'll have some sort of success with people coming to know Jesus and people saying, the way that my life is going is not working, and I'm going to surrender my life to the king. And if that only happens a couple of times a year, all of a sudden we're a successful church. Right? But here's the thing. Other churches, uh, and I've been a part of these kind of churches, work like this. Well, we have 100 people, maybe four of them are really investing in people, or let's just say even 10 of them are really investing in the people around them, and 90 of them just show up to church on Sunday because the music is good, right? And so what happens then is all of a sudden that number of people, which is what I really think makes a successful church, is how many people are we investing in outside of the walls? That number jumps then from 100 or a couple of 100 or whatever to maybe 20 or 30, and then out of those 20 or 30, the odds of somebody actually sort of, it's just simple math, right? Just coming to faith and surrendering their life to Jesus is a lot. It's not impossible, but it's just a lot less than if we're out there trying to reach over 100 people or whatever. A lot more. Uh, that's what missional living is about. It's about an entire church doing this together. Encouraging each other when we succeed. Encouraging each other when we fail because there's going to be more failure. You're going to get more drinks thrown in your face than you're going to... Get girls that tell you their name, right? Okay, that's a terrible illustration. Don't, don't quote me on this, right? Uh, but you get the idea, right? It's, it's going to be hard, but what the point is, at the end of the road, all of a sudden there's people now who have surrendered their lives to the King Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Living like this only really happens when we care about the right stuff, the real stuff. 
And not church numbers, not church budgets, whatever it is, not Sunday morning attendance, right, but actual kingdom growth. Here's the thing. The church in Laodicea probably didn't really care about this. They had this completely warped sense of self. They looked at themselves and said, oh, we're great. Look how many people are coming on Sunday. Look how big our budget is. And Jesus looks at them and says, you think you're rich? You're poor and pitiable and naked, right? And so what's the solution then? Jesus, here's the thing. Jesus doesn't just leave them and say, too bad, right? He's, there's grace here. Look at what he tells them to do. Look at the solution in verse 18. He says, look, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself uh, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and to anoint your eyes uh, and sell Sav? How do you say that? Somebody that knows. Salve. Salve? There's a, you say the L? Can I tell you a funny story? And I probably should learn how to say that word. All right, so the first time I ever taught in front of a group, a church, I was a young youth pastor. I was like 20 years old. And they got me up, and I did a little five-minute speech on this, uh, like, you know, a little sermonette kind of on this passage. On This is the first passage I ever taught. And I got up there, and I said this word wrong like three or four times, and somebody from the congregation shouted it out. It's, but now I don't even remember which is the right way to say it, salve or salve, whatever. This eye gunk, uh, we'll say, uh, to, <laughs> to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Um, all right, so even Jesus could have just destroyed this church uh, and completely been just in doing so. But here's the thing, there's grace here. He gives this church another chance. He loves this church. And what he does is he asks them to do three things. First, he says, buy gold from me, pure gold refined by fire. Now, remember, this was a banking town. And the people in this town probably put their hope in wealth, in money, in the security um, that money brings. Not unlike San Francisco, right? San Francisco is a financial center. And there's nothing wrong with finance uh, and that sort of stuff. If it wasn't for all that stuff, how am I going to buy a car or a house or whatever, right? So there's good in that. But um, <clears throat> there's something wrong with uh, elevating money and the security that money brings to the level of a god. And this is what, why Jesus, in the Gospels especially, and we'll read about this a lot in the Gospel of Luke, why Jesus talks so much about money. Because money is one of the easiest idols. It's one of the easiest um, replacements for him. It's probably the most common idol. And people think, well, if only I had this amount of money, I'd be happy. But here's the thing. If that's true, then why are so many rich people miserable? Right? It's, you know, how many of these rich people are, um, you know, I mean, there's nothing wrong with being rich. The Bible's full of lots of godly rich people. But the reason that they're godly is because they don't find their happiness in their wealth. Um, <clears throat> so Jesus, what he says is if you're looking uh, for security and hope in money, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because what you're looking for in money can only be found in him. Right? But that's not all. The second thing he says is, buy white garments from Jesus. So the first thing that this city was was it was a banking center. The second thing was, if you remember, they had this textile industry. Uh, they were famous for their clothing, for the fashion, and they took security in what they produced, the products being made. And so um, that famous, the famous clothes that came from this place was what Laodicea was really known for. And so we do this too. Maybe money isn't your idol, right? Maybe the status of your job is. Maybe where you work is where you really find fulfillment. And Jesus says, look, I mean, we're, we're going to talk, especially as we read the book of Luke, we're going to talk about how to be kind of kingdom-minded workers and how to work in our jobs for a different king. 
But here's the thing. Jesus says, ultimately, if you're trying to find fulfillment in your life through your job, that's not going to do it either. That will always leave you empty. But he says faith in him won't. Right. And here's the thing. There's this other second level connection when he talks about the clothing. And I'm not going to get into this a bunch, but especially in the book of Revelation, there's this connection between uh, righteousness and clothing. This imagery that's used. uh, The word righteousness basically means to have on the right clothes. And so uh, at the end times, when Jesus's army comes back with him, right, his people, the conquering army with our king, it says we're all going to be wearing these white clothes, like white, like nobody could ever, no launderer could ever bleach those kind of clothes, right? And the idea is, though, the, the, the white um, represents purity, right? We have this pure righteousness. But here's the thing. Where do we get this righteousness, right? Romans, the beginning of Romans tells us that we don't get the righteousness through our own works and through anything that we do, because everything that we have is a bunch of filthy rags, But what Jesus does is he gives us his righteousness. He gives us his jacket is the idea. And so we all show up wearing Jesus' clothes. So we are saved by grace and grace alone. And we show up at the end times with these pure white robes, man dress kind of things, you know. And we're going to show up looking like Jesus. The third thing he says then, he moves on. So he says, you've got the, the, buy the gold from me, get get your, your righteousness, your clothes from me. And then the third thing is, get this eye goop medicine stuff from me. Um, Again, this city was famous for the, they called it Phrygian eye powder. And they were known for their school of medicine. And it was all about health. And we also do this idol, don't we, is uh, as uh, Americans. Uh, we worship our, uh, our health, right? There's a difference, though, between uh, a godly way of taking care of your body, that the, the body that the Lord is giving you, and obsessing about health and beauty. Uh, but everywhere you look, Hollywood, magazines, uh, TV shows, whatever it is, Um, are all uh, telling you, trying to feed your insecurities. You are not good-looking enough. You're not tall enough. You're not strong enough. And, you know, you've got too much of a dad bod, whatever it is, right? We get this stuff, uh, and it constantly sort of gnaws away at us. And we start to think, man, if only I looked like him. If only I looked like her, I would finally be content in life. We chase this ideal of beauty that's only possible with Photoshop. And uh, so while it's... Here's the thing. If that's true, that eventually we can get content enough by looking a certain way. Here's the, my question is, why are so many people who are already beautiful Hollywood stars go out and get this horrible plastic surgery? Have you ever noticed this? Somebody, guy, it happens guys and girls are already like, that's a good looking dude. That's a pretty lady. And you're like, why did she go and completely tear up her face? There's some insecurity in her. Somebody in an audition said, oh, you know, your cheek is too whatever, or there's too much love handles or something, I don't know, something. And it gnawed away at this person who's already beautiful, and they think, well, if only I could get to this point, then I'll finally be secure. And Jesus says, the approval that you're looking for from other people through beauty, through health, if only I could be strong enough, if only I could be pretty enough. He says, that kind of approval that you're looking for is only going to happen in him. Right? The, the only approval you really need in life is for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. Right? You're one of mine. Let's, get, let's take you up into heaven. Right? That's the only approval that you really need. And so Jesus' advice to this church is really the same advice to us. Is we have, and he, this is just three things, but we all do this with all different kinds of things. Is uh, We try to find our hope and our rest in these things that are not Jesus and that ultimately won't satisfy us. And so Jesus says, come to me for those things. 
And then he, can, he uh, continues with the second part of the solution. He says, look, to those that I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. So there's grace here. He says, look, I still love you. That's why I discipline you. The way a parent disciplines a child. Not because they want to destroy that child, but because they love that child and they're trying to help that child turn around. Uh, He says, look, I stand at the door and I knock. Now, this verse is constantly misapplied. Think about it. Where have you usually heard this verse, especially if you grew up in church or you have spent a lot of time with church? Where have you seen this verse? Right In sort of gospel tracts. There's Jesus standing at the door and he's knocking at the heart of the unbeliever. And he's saying, uh, if you, you have to let me into your heart. Uh, I mean, the truth is what the Bible says is Jesus busts down the door. He walks inside. Everybody's dead. And then he goes, hey, you're all back to life now. That's like the actual way the Bible talks about salvation. But here's the thing. Uh, we talk about this kind of in this weird way, like Jesus is outside knocking and he's waiting for us to respond. I found this hilarious cartoon on Reddit making fun of Christians. You know, it says, let me in. And then the guy inside says, why? And Jesus says, so I can save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. Talking about judgment. I mean, it's, it's supposed to make fun of us, but it's kind of tr- it's theologically accurate, let's say. <laughs> um, well, sort of. Uh, but anyway, uh, all right, I'll get rid of that so you can... <laughs> that had nothing to do with anything. I just had that cartoon in a folder in my computer, and I think it's hilarious. Um, here's the thing. That's not what's happening here. This is not Jesus talking to a bunch of unbelievers saying, let me into your heart so that I can save you. What's happening? Who's he talking to? A church. Right? So first, this is not an individual. This is happening on a corporate level. Jesus is pleading with this group of people, this church in Laodicea. And second, he's asking to come back inside. The idea is this church has found a whole bunch, these Christians, these followers of Jesus supposedly, has found a whole bunch of things that they rely on instead of Jesus Christ to the point where they've moved him outside the building. Right? He's not even a part of the church anymore. And so when uh, What he says is, you guys, you need to let me back in so that, and then do you see this? I can take you guys out to dinner. It's kind of a weird, this weird imagery. But I love the imagery in the Bible of feasting, right? Eden was full of food to eat. The Old Testament constantly talks about feasting as this metaphor for joy. Um, And the new heaven and the new earth is portrayed as a feast, right? The marriage supper of the lamb. And this whole image reminds me at the end of the prodigal son story. Do you guys know the prodigal son story? Probably. We'll get there in Luke chapter 15. But let me just give you the quick recap. So there was a father and he had two sons. And one of the sons said, Dad, I wish you were dead. Can I have my inheritance right now? And the dad says, all right. So he sells a bunch of stuff, dilutes all of his wealth, gives half of it to the son. Son goes off parties, hookers, booze, cocaine, the whole thing, right? Runs out of money. Uh, he's, he's hungry, he's starving to death, he's in a far-off country. He finds a job feeding pigs, which for a Jewish person back then was like a terrible job to have. And he says, man, even the people who work for my dad have it better than this. So I'm going to go home, and I'm going to just I have this speech prepared. I'm going to say, Dad, I, I, I was wrong, I sinned against you, and uh, I just, can I just have a job? I don't want to be your son anymore, but can I just have a job? So he comes home. The dad sees him from a long way away. Uh, and very undignified for the patriarch of a Jewish family. He hikes up his little man skirt thing, and he's running, bolting down the road. And he runs up to his son, and his son starts his speech. Dad, I've sinned against heaven, and his dad picks him up and bear hugs him. 
crying, I'm so glad you're alive, we thought you were dead, whatever. Brings him back inside, kill the fatted calf, which was like, you know, the, the best meat in a culture where they didn't have meat all the time. He says, kill the fatted calf, we're throwing a party. And now most of the time when we talk about the prodigal son, we talk about the first son. But the story is actually about the second son. Because what's happening is the second son is out in the field and he's working. And he hears his party. And he walks up to, to the house. And he says, Dad, what's this party about? And he's like, your brother who was dead is alive. He was lost and is found. And we're throwing this shindig, right? We've got banjo music playing. There's a guy roasting the, the, the cow out back. We're having this great party. And the son, the second son, or that first son, he flips out. And he says, how dare you? He's like, I'm the good son. I was here all along. I always served you faithfully. You never even gave me, you know, the, the B-rate meat or whatever. I don't know how rating meat works. But you never even gave me the crummy meat to have a party with my friends. And then the dad basically goes, dude, he's like, he's back and we're having a party. And the parable ends. And so the question is, is this good church person going to come into the party? And the idea is, the Lord is throwing a party. And it's the same imagery here. And he's pleading with the church. Are you guys coming to the party that I'm going to throw? Or are you going to huddle together and just do your own thing without Jesus in the middle? That's the question. It's the same as the end. The question for the church in Laodicea is the same thing that was posed to the Pharisees through the prodigal son story. Is Are you guys going to come to the feast that Jesus is throwing? And then the passage ends like this. To the one, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, are you going to come into the party? We don't know what he means by you're going to sit with me on the throne and you're going to rule and all this stuff. Whatever it is in the new heavens and new earth, it's going to be awesome. We're going to be there. We're going to be working with Jesus. Um, But that only happens if as the church, the church of Laodicea, lets Jesus back in. And so here's how we'll end. This letter is about self-deception. Right? We have money, so we're okay. We have nice things, so we're okay. We look good on the outside. We have people show up to church on Sunday. We have a big budget. We have a lot of staff, whatever it is. But the truth is that this church in Laodicea was uh, tepid, disgusting water that makes Jesus throw up when he thinks about them. Right? That's, that's the truth. It's a, the, but they didn't even know it. They thought everything was going fine. And Jesus says, you guys make me want to yak. So let's apply this individually and then corporately. Individually... What is it that you're resting your life in that has nothing to do with Jesus? We all have idols. We all have this earthly stuff. Is it your job makes you feel good about yourself? I have this good job, so I'm worth something. Is it your family? Look at my kids. You know, they're in, you know, uh, they're doing their black belt in Taekwondo or whatever, right? This makes me so important. Is it your bank account? Right, look how much money I have saved. I'm a good saver, and I have this much money in the bank. Um, So I don't have to worry. My life is good. Is it health and beauty? Is it spiritual activity, right? I volunteer at church, I'm an usher, whatever it is, right? We all have these things that Jesus comes and he says, guys, what are you doing? You need to get that stuff from me. You need to get that security and that hope and that grace. You need that from me. But here's the thing. This this letter was not written to individuals. It was written corporately to a church. So let's think about this as a church. What is it that's going to make us feel good as a church? We have this many people show up on Sunday mornings. This must be proof of God's favor. Well, I mean, the biggest church in America is Joel Osteen's church, and that's not really saying much. Right? That church is terrible, and they don't preach the gospel. And all they're doing is they're leading people away from Jesus. So sheer numbers, not that they don't matter, because we want as many people in the world to get to know Jesus 
as possible, but just the idea that people are coming and sitting in the pews doesn't really matter. Right? We have, well, we have this program. Look at all the stuff that we're doing for God. Our music is awesome. Our preaching is amazing, isn't it? Just kidding. Um, we compare ourselves with other churches, right? Well, maybe we aren't that great, but look at those guys. At least we're better than those guys. This is all stuff that churches do to try to make themselves feel good. And so you can see that there's a lot of easy temptations where we could very easily slip into this Laodicean kind of Christianity, where we rely on this extra stuff to make us feel good, to make us feel valuable. Um, so what do we do? What does Jesus tell this church? He says, look, get this stuff from me. You may have all the money in the world. You may have the greatest job in the world. You may have the best church in the world, whatever. But what you don't have is Jesus. You see, he's somebody. He's rich. He's awesome. He's the creator of the world. And to redeem us, he became a nobody. He clothed himself in human flesh, became one of us, lived in a backwater, worthless town in a a worthless country in the Roman Empire. He didn't have money. His family was broke. And he became a nobody so that you could become a somebody. And the only time you're ever going to feel like a somebody, and the only way that our church is ever going to be something worth uh, anything, is if we uh, rest in Jesus. So let me end this whole series then. This is the last of these seven letters with this challenge. As we move forward towards launching the porch together, we need to ask ourselves this question all the time. Is Jesus at the center of what it is that we're doing here? Is he going to be the center of your life? your marriage, your work, whatever? Is he going to be the center of your parenting, your hobbies, the way that you interact with the people around you? Is he going to be the center of our church, our community? I have absolutely zero desire to be the pastor of a church where Jesus is not the main attraction. And if you're here for the music, the teaching, and the fellowship, which are all good things, or if you're here for bad things like pride, duty, self-righteousness, whatever, Right? If we start a, re- a church for any other reason than to worship and glory in the majesty of our king, then we have zero chance of starting a church with kingdom success. But as we move forward, let's do so with our king as the main object. So let's worship him. Let's teach about him. Let's fellowship with his people. Right? Let's give our wealth to his work. Let's pray for his gospel to go forward in our community. Let's spend time in prayer with him. Let's turn to him for the forgiveness of sin. Let's do it all for him and for his glory, not for me and mine, not for you and yours. And so let's, from the get-go, here we are at the beginning stages of this, let's from the get-go define ourselves as a church that is absolutely, completely obsessed with King Jesus. Amen? That's what I want us to take away from this church, uh, from these letters to these churches. Let's pray.